Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today, we're looking at the Israeli election, and joining me on the line from Tel Aviv is our correspondent there, Mehul Srivastava. And in the studio, our Middle East editor, Andrew England. Mehul, first of all, we're about a week away from polling. It's a lively time, isn't it? Because Benjamin Netanyahu was in Washington receiving a kind of benediction from Donald Trump and then had to return suddenly to Israel. Can you summarise what's been happening in the last week or so? I mean, it's been a very exciting last week or so for what looks like one of the most exciting Israeli elections in a long time. Netanyahu is neck and neck with a brand new party that didn't exist more than a month ago called the Blue and White Party. And for him to hold on to his right-wing base, Mr. Netanyahu has to emphasize his security credentials and his connection with the White House. And the last three or four days were supposed to be just that, supposed to be a victory lap. He was going to go to the White House, he was going to be greeted by his friend, U.S. President Donald Trump, and he would receive a document that says Americans recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, something the right-wing here has wanted for a long time. But just as he landed in the U.S. and just as this whole victory lap, as you may call it, began, an attack from the Hamas-controlled enclave of Gaza threw all the plans into disarray. He decided to cut his trip short and come back here so he can lead whatever response the Israeli government comes up with to the sudden escalation from unprovoked rockets from Gaza. And so we've had a week of almost complete chaos and a lack of direction from the two leading candidates. But in a sense, it's obviously hard to gauge how these things play. But if the Prime Minister Netanyahu is relying on the security card, does an attack from Hamas possibly help him? You would think so, except Gaza has proven to be the Prime Minister's Achilles heel. For the last year or so, instead of being able to push for a longer-term ceasefire, something called a Huthna by Hamas, he has been looking for the short opportunity to kick the can down the road through a series of concessions that are granted to Hamas in order to stop protests, to stop these haphazard rocket attacks, or to hold back any uh, of these so-called terror balloons where young men in Gaza are attaching Molotov cocktails, basically, to the bottom of balloons and letting them fly into Israeli territory. So it's turned into a bit of a successful blackmail on the side of Hamas and an Achilles heel for Netanyahu, and a reminder two weeks right before elections that he's not able to bring the kind of calm that he promises he will bring is not exactly looking really good for him. And Andrew, of course, the other background is that he goes into this election with this corruption probe and indeed potential prosecution hanging over his head. Yeah, that's correct. He would be the first sitting prime minister to be indicted if the attorney general goes ahead of it. We should say, whilst the attorney general has announced his intention to indict him, the prime minister still has the right to appeal that and sort of appear before a hearing and argue against him being indicted. But it's just created a lot of uncertainty. I think the 
closeness of the race was unexpected a few months ago. The fact that Netanyahu could be indicted and then if he does manage to succeed and form a coalition after the election and retain the prime ministership, then there'll be a period of uncertainty as the legal process plays out. So I think we're kind of in a period of uncharted territory for Israel in terms of the politics that perhaps you haven't seen for a decade. And Mehul, is it your impression that the corruption allegations have damaged him? I think that what has happened over here is that when the corruption allegations were first aired two years ago, there was a possibility that you would see a large amount of votes shift simply because of the allegations the evidence that came out. But in the last two or three years, the Prime Minister has marshaled his very loyal base into a judiciary versus a right-wing argument that has made, especially in terms of voting patterns, the announcement of this intention to indict him have very little effect on how his base will vote. But it's created an opportunity for the opposition to say, well, look, it's time to change horses. This is our chance to bring in a fresh slate. And it's energized them in a way that they were not so in previous elections. So while it's impossible to say that he's lost votes, it has certainly made him vulnerable in terms of the narrative and in terms of the messaging as he goes into elections. Netanyahu likes to project himself as a man astride Israeli politics, a man above it all. Instead, now he's on the defensive and no politician likes to be in that position. And Andrew, I mean, what do we make of the opposition? Because the leader, Benny Gantz, is new to politics. Yeah? Absolutely. He's very much a political neophyte. And we don't really have a clear idea of his policies. We know he's a former chief of staff with the Israeli Defence Forces. And that's in the past, Rabin, Barak, both former chiefs of staffs who became prime minister. So that's not too unusual. But in terms of his policy, he's kind of given mixed messages. On the one hand, he said that, you know, he would never get up the Golan Heights, the occupied Syrian territory, and he's used videos of the war against Hamas in Gaza as part of his election campaign. On the other hand, he's also said that you know there's no shame in striving for peace. So he can play the hawkish, you know, hard man military figure on the one hand, but he's indicating that perhaps he could take a softer stance on the peace process than Netanyahu. We just really don't know. I mean, he is a political neophyte, as you said. It's only in the last few weeks that he's put together this party. So he's very much an unknown quantity in terms of what his politics would be, I think. And meanwhile, Mehul, I guess the traditional left parties in Israel are being, if I can put it that way, left behind. I mean, Labour is well behind in third. And I gather the main sort of left party Moretz may not even make parliament. It's a moment of complete decimation for Labour, which is, if you remember, the party that founded this country and had towering leaders like, you know, Rizak Rabin and Golda Meir, etc., who represented a certain kind of socialist left-wing but robust military face of Israel to the world. And in the last 10 years, Netanyahu's greatest success has been to make people believe that the word left is somehow a code for weakness, for compromise, for trying to ensure peace with the Palestinians by sacrificing Israeli gains in terms of Jerusalem or the West Bank. And combined with a little bit of infighting amongst the left and the labor in a very strong economy, you suddenly have a position where Labour may come in with six or seven seats. Meretz may not even pass the 3.25% threshold. And so you essentially have a battle between the centre, centre-left, and the hard right, and the left is completely out of the conversation. So, Andrew, in the middle of this election, we get this gambit from Donald Trump 
where he essentially recognises Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, much to the disgust of the sort of professional peace process people who say this is absolutely not something that should happen. But what impact do you think it will have in the wider Middle East? Do you think there's so much else going on he'll get away with it? They'll get away with it in the sense that, you know, nothing changes on the ground anyway, and it's a big symbolic show of support from Donald Trump to Netanyahu ahead of the election. I mean, most people look at the timing of Trump's proclamation and see there's no other reason except to give Netanyahu a boost. And we know that the White House, Kushner, Trump himself are very close to the prime minister. In the longer term, it could actually complicate efforts to get some sort of peace process moving and actually complicate Israel's efforts to improve the kind of covert informal relations it's been enjoying with the Gulf states. Because in doing this, basically Trump is setting a president to say Israeli annexation of Arab land can stand or occupied territory can stand. And even if Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE want to prioritise the pushback against Iran and want to move closer to Israel on that basis, they cannot be seen to accepting occupied Arab land just being handed over. So we saw, you know, this week we saw Saudi Arabia, we saw the UAE, we saw Qatar, we saw Kuwait, we saw Bahrain all complaining about Trump's move, saying this is a violation of international law and we can actually create more instability and undermine the US position as a peace broker. So in the short term, there could be some gain for Netanyahu, but longer term, this just seems to be another complicating factor. And Mel, does it feed, though, the hopes of the Israeli far right, if I can call them that, that this could be a precedent for the West Bank? I mean, are there people in Israel and in this election seriously talking about annexing the West Bank as well as the Golan Heights? The standard knee-jerk position of the right wing here in Israel has always been that the West Bank, they call it uh, Judea and Samaria, referring to it by the biblical names, that they have an exclusive and historic and religious claim to it. The question is, how do they move the conversation in the entire country towards the support of annexation? And in the last eight or ten years, they've had quite some success. Of all the party members from Mr. Netanyahu's Likud party that are running for re-election, all 29 of them, they support annexing some or all of the West Bank. So this is a standard position. This is not a right-wing, out-of-the-pale position that's taken up by people in Mr. Netanyahu's party. And he has coalition partners. His entire peace plan involves annexing at least 50 or 60 percent of the West Bank. There's a party with whom he will eventually have to form a coalition whose peace plan they themselves summarize in is maximum land and minimum Palestinians. So the right-wing here sees this argument that if you've won it in a defensive war, you can keep it as a very, very tempting argument. Remember, both the Golan Heights and the West Bank were seized both from Syria and from Jordan in the same war. And already there are very, very loud cries to make sure that this is the next important thing that you lobby the White House with, because they've never had a more receptive audience. And yet there was some sense of a pushback when Mr. Netanyahu made an alliance with a party that's regarded as really far-right, even in the Israeli spectrum. Describe to us what happened there. I mean, Mr. Netanyahu is faced with the possibility that some of his potential coalition partners, because of infighting and bickering amongst them, will not cross the 3.25% of the national vote threshold. So to make sure that not a single right-wing vote is wasted and redistributed equally across parliament, he encouraged the merger of two extremely right-wing parties, one of whom whose leader has now been banned by the Supreme Court from running in this election because of his incitement to anti-Arab violence. But this partnership, they described it as a technical partnership, 
one necessary to keep a right-wing coalition in power, has raised significant concern, especially amongst Netanyahu's more traditional allies in the West, including AIPAC, because it makes the right wing in Israel appear, if nothing else, receptive to the ideas of a clearly racist party. The question is whether or not any of these people will get seats in parliament or whether or not, on top of that, they may get ministerships. But the courting and the laundering, if you want to call it that, of this right-wing party into a respectable candidate for a coalition has been very troubling to a large number of people, both in Israel and abroad. But the right-wing, they'll vote for Mitchell Netanyahu no matter who brings into the Knesset, it seems. And finally, Mehul, could I try and get you to put this in some sort of international context? Because Mr. Netanyahu seems to be part of, a, if you can put it, a global nationalist coalition, if such a thing can exist. He was in the Trump White House, but he was also at the Bolsonaro inauguration in Brazil. He's close to Viktor Orban in Hungary, despite Mr. Orban being accused of anti-Semitism himself. Do you think Netanyahu feels that the ideological tides globally are moving his way? Mr. Netanyahu has made it very clear that part of his last term in office right now and his future term is going to be to legitimize the international position of Jerusalem as the accepted capital of Israel. This started when the Trump White House agreed to move its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Since then, Mr. Netanyahu has increasingly gotten closer to leaders who are sympathetic to this idea. And these tend to be leaders from countries that either have large evangelical Christian populations, like in the Philippines and in Brazil with Mr. Bolsonaro, And with Mr. Orban, there's a possibility that you can convince at least somebody in the European Union to break away from the standard position. So he is approaching this as a very single-issue courtship, get embassies to move to Jerusalem. And within that, there's a large amount of moral inclarity, if you want to call it that, involved with hanging out with leaders such as Bolsonaro or Mr. Orban, who have accusations against them that make them appear illiberal or unwelcoming of the kind of things that a Western democracy like Israel champions. But if it's possible to move an embassy to Jerusalem, Mr. Netanyahu has shown himself capable of significant compromise. Okay. Well, with that thought, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks very much to Mehul in Tel Aviv, to Andrew here in the studio in London. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.